heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back, guys. This is going to be episode 7 of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. So glad to have you back here today. This interview today is with a guy I know named Jeff Vandrew. I actually met him through a programming class that I took uh, with Justin Moon. Biddle Bootcamp, you can find out more about that in the interview that I did with Justin. I believe that's episode 3 or 4 of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, if you want to go back and learn more about Biddle Bootcamp. Anyway, Jeff is just an awesome guy. He's got a lot of really interesting information about Bitcoin retirement accounts. And I've been following Jeff for a while. And after seeing like some of the projects that he's working on, on tax protecting Bitcoin and retirement accounts, I just knew I had to get him on the show because that's a question that a lot of people are curious about. That's something that a lot of people want more information. So I picked Jeff's brain on that topic as much as I possibly could. And you can find more information in the show and at the end of the show and down in the show notes. If you're interested in getting in contact with Jeff or finding more about the service he offers, which allows you to custody your own Bitcoin in a retirement account so that you can tax protect those crypto gains. Before we get started, if you guys haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on any of your favorite podcasting services like iTunes, Spotify, Overcast. Just search Bitcoin Echo Chamber on any podcast service that you are familiar with and you will probably find us. If you are interested, you can go to BitcoinEchoChamber.com where you can find more information about the show. You can donate, you can become a sponsor, or you can just find a list of all the episodes if you want to do it that way. Let's do a quick word from the sponsors and then we'll get into things. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Jeff, how are you doing today, man? Good, man. Happy to be here. I'm actually glad I got you on, especially such short notice, because I've been paying attention to the stuff that you've been doing for actually quite a while now. I think we were talking right before we started, you were on Bottom Shelf Bitcoin and the Noted podcast not that long ago. Yep, yep. Yeah, so for my listeners who maybe uh, might not be subscribers to those podcasts, can you tell us, like, what's your background on Bitcoin? Like, what brought Jeff Andrew to this point in time? Sure. So uh, I started out with the whole gold thing, like some older Bitcoiners like, like me, uh, you know, end up going down that path. So I was always into the concept of sound money, you know, had owned gold in the past, but, you know, gold has its obvious limitations, right? It's heavy. It's hard to transport. It's hard to transact with. It's, it's not really all that divisible, you know, et cetera. So it had always kind of been my thing. And then when Bitcoin came along in uh, 09, you know, I noticed it, but I didn't really get in at that time. I was not like one of the first people running Bitcoin core. I did not buy coins on Mt. Gox or anything quite that early. Um, I kind of just thought about it and filed it away a little bit. And then I personally uh, eventually bought in in 2014. Uh, so that was my first personal Bitcoin purchase. And at that time, uh, I kind of thought to myself, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I was able to purchase Bitcoin in my IRA? Because in addition to developing software on the side, um, you know, my day job is I'm licensed as an attorney and a CPA. I'm a tax lawyer. Like I don't go to court or 
wear a suit or anything like that. I help people plan their tax stuff. So I was like, yeah, it'd be really great if I could do that. So I sort of created a structure where you could hold Bitcoin in your IRA or 401k, but in such a way where you hold the private keys instead of having to trust the private keys to a third party custodian. So initially I came up with this legal structure just for myself, right? Uh, I didn't really think anybody else would be interested in it, but I kind of put it out there in case, you know, I was kind of like, what the hell, I might as well start offering it to clients. And in the beginning I was right. No one cared about it at all. Uh, no one was interested in it. Uh, you know, the people that were buying Bitcoin back then uh, were skeptical of the whole idea of an IRA in general, right? It was a smaller group of people and not a people, not a group that was interested in that. So I just kind of chugged along with no one really using it except me and a few others. And then 2017 hit and all these people suddenly got interested in it and it became a huge part of my business to the point where in terms of my day job where I actually make money since I don't make any real money in open source software development. Um, that's the probably over half of my business now is setting up, like I said, IRAs for people in such a structure where they can hold their own private keys which has the benefits of number one, obviously the normal benefits of holding your own private keys, you're in control, you can verify your own transactions, you're not dealing with the whole not your keys, not your Bitcoin thing. And number two, most of the other commercial IRA providers where their custodial type solutions are much more expensive. They charge a percentage on your purchases, your sales, all that sort of stuff. If you set it up this way, there's none of those fees involved at all. So had to show my own thing a little bit there while answering your question, but that's, that's how I initially got involved. Yeah, no, that, I mean, uh, your your Vandrew LLC is actually like one of the main reasons I brought you on here because I don't think enough people know that this is even possible. Um, and you, I want to dive into this a little bit more because you yeah. mentioned that the the keys are custodial for for the for the person that owns the IRA. Now I'm not a tax accountant like you are, uh, or not a tax lawyer, and I'm also right. not a CPA. But I'm under the impression that uh, most tax protected accounts are non-custodial for the person that owns that account usually, right? No. So, well, it's kind of an interesting thing. All IRAs actually have to be custodial. They're required by law to have a third party custodian who is licensed by the, well, you could be one of two things. If you're a third party custodian, you can either be a bank or a, an IRS licensed non-bank custodian, right? So for instance, if you have an IRA with, I'm just going to pick a really easy example, like Vanguard or TD Ameritrade. Vanguard or TD Ameritrade are actually the custodian of your account. They grant you trading privileges so you can log into your account and switch out of different stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all that sort of stuff. But legally, they are the custodian of your funds. They are in control and have possession of those funds. It's legally required. So the initial Bitcoin IRA providers work similarly. Um, they held your keys. You know, you sent them money. You told them how much Bitcoin you wanted to buy. They would go buy it on your behalf. They would hold it for you on your behalf. And that's just how it works, sort of like a custodial wallet. I mean, that's essentially the way the initial Bitcoin IRAs worked. And what I did um, to help people set this up in such a way where they both comply with the law but also um, can hold their own keys is we inserted an LLC as a middleman. So what we do is you still have to use, again, legally, you still need that third party custodian. But instead of that third party custodian holding your Bitcoin, I form an LLC for you. And the only asset held by that third party custodian is ownership of that LLC. You as the account holder, though, are named a manager of the LLC, which means even though the custodian owns the LLC, 
you have full control over that all that LLC's accounts. The custodian has no access to the private keys for the Bitcoin. They don't have any access to the LLC's checking account that it might use to you know, shuttle fiat currency in and out to buy Bitcoin. It is not, the custodian is not able to touch any of that. You're solely the person able to touch that stuff. So by setting it up the legal structure that way, we comply with the law because there is a third party custodian involved. However, you have full control over your keys so that you know in the worst case scenario, you're always the one in control of your Bitcoin. That is uh, super interesting. And I think it's really, really in touch with what Bitcoiners want. I think you really hit the nail on the head with that one. So what, like, okay, let's say I'm uh, I'm the custodian. You've set up this LLC for me, and now I'm, I'm holding my own private keys for this retirement account. Am right. I allowed to buy and sell my Bitcoin on my own, or do I have to do that through you? Since you're- No, so you do that as, as often as you want. Um, th- so the only reporting to the custodian, the licensed custodian, is once a year they send you a form asking you what the value in your account was on December 31st of the prior year. So they don't need an accounting of your trades. They don't need to know what you're actually holding. They just need the value of your account on December 31st of the prior year because that gets reported to the IRS. The custodian's responsible for reporting that to the IRS. But that's it. There's no other IRS reporting involved. There's no other reporting to the custodian involved. And the custodian's able to do that because when you when we set up when we, we, we you know basically I'm not the custodian because that has to be an IRS licensed financial institution. But I set up the whole legal structure and the agreement between you and the custodian. That's my role. Um, so we set when this is all set up, you actually sign a waiver of liability to the custodian. That's why the custodian's willing to do this. In other words, it basically says if you lose your keys, it's not the custodian's problem. Right. Or if you do something stupid, you know, you make a bad investment. It's not the custodian's problem. It's a it's a complete, you know, personal responsibility type solution. You're in control of your keys. You're in control of your purchases. You're in control of your sales. You're on your own. Yeah. Which is appealing to most Bitcoiners. Right. I mean, that's usually what we're looking for. Right. We don't we, we don't trust other people. That's our biggest right. problem. We're, we're Yeah, exactly. Right. So and that has the advantage of one, you don't have to trust the custodian because they're, they don't have any control over anything. And two, their fee is like super low uh, because they don't, it's not like with the major Bitcoin IRA providers, they charge a percentage of the Bitcoin that you're holding because they're custodying it for you. Right. But you don't have to worry about that with this solution because they're not responsible for it. They're not custodying it. They're not responsible for any security. Um, So it makes everything a lot less expensive as well. Now, something that immediately comes to my mind is, can I take like an existing Roth IRA and roll it into uh, this? Yeah. That's most of what we do. So we help people that if you have an old 401k from an old employer or you have an old IRA or you have an old Roth IRA, you can roll some or all of it into this structure on a tax-free basis. Yeah, you can absolutely do that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, no tax consequence at all. And we help you through that whole process. So like you don't have, you're not on your own or anything. We help you with the rollover. It's typically very smooth. Um, you know, the whole setup of the legal structure, the custodial account, the rollover, everything takes at most like two to three weeks. Um, And then the whole thing's done and you're good to go. And from then on, you know, you're making all your investments on your own. You're all, you're all set. That's awesome. I love it. And all right. So we we talked about the whole LLC thing, but let's, let's bring it back to Bitcoin for a minute here. You you said that before you got into Bitcoin, you were a gold bug. What got you into gold? Like what, what was it? 
that kind of piqued your interest in terms of store of value rather than going for all the equities and everything. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the same thing. You know, Bitcoiners tend to get into it one of two ways, right? Uh, they either get into Bitcoin because they get interested in the technology and then they start reading about the economic end of it, right? The Austrian economic end. And then that comes later. Or, you know, some Bitcoiners, some of them don't even know anything about technology. They're into the Austrian end and then they, and then that's what brings them to Bitcoin. Yeah. So it's really just not much different than the latter in that, you know, I was, had always been interested in the concept of sound money. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot on Twitter and I've mentioned in some other contexts is, you know, we're told all the time that things are much better now than in the past, right? Like that, that, that there, there's just been nothing but improvements uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. But if you really look, and particularly if you look at the end of Bretton Woods as a dividing line. So Bretton Woods was not a real gold standard, but it was at least a quasi gold standard, right? It, it created some level of soundness to the money, even if it wasn't real sound money. And just look at what's happened since 1972, right? It's almost like we hit a wall at that point. The cost of everything in real terms that matters has skyrocketed, right? There's this idea, which I think is false, that uh, there hasn't been any real inflation. Like people, uh, people in this generation haven't had to worry about that. And that's BS because in the things that matter, education, housing, even food, even real food, right? Like not garbage, but yeah. like actual real food. At once you hit that 1972 breakpoint, things just go crazy. They go, they go off the hook. The only things that have prevented that from showing up in the inflation numbers is garbage has gotten a lot cheaper, right? So, like you, the example I always use is in 1960, you could only afford one TV. In 2019, you can afford five in your house, right? You have one in every room, but you can't afford to own the house that they're in, right? right? That's that's the situation we're in. So there's this crazy idea of uh, basically lies that have been peddled, right, about the last you know 40 or 50 years. And when I look back at that, you know, that personally makes me angry. I look back at what's been taken from us, um, and that is, you know, I try to practice stoicism and not not try to get angry about things I can't control. But personally, that 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 does make me angry, and that is always why gold was appealing to me, right? So I would see this, and I would say, well, gold seems like it would be an, like a gold-backed currency would seem like it would be an answer to a lot of these problems. Bitcoin solves a lot of issues with that hope right because with gold because gold is not inherently transactable right like i can't go to the store and like buy something you know i can't go buy a bottle of water in the convenience store with gold right like i'd have to be shaving off like the tiniest amount of gold so we've usually had to rely on the government for gold backing and that's rough right because you're in a trust situation again they can break the gold peg at any time as happened in the 70s um, and, and they can play games again, even before Bretton Woods ended, the government was playing games with the, with the peg, right. By basically strong arming other countries into not redeeming, uh, notes for gold. So that was always the main problem with it. And Bitcoin solves that problem by removing the government from the money by making, by having a transactable sound money, right. Unlike gold, which inherently is just very hard to transact with the actual physical gold itself. So that's my very long answer into how I made, uh, you know, that sort of transition. 
Yeah, no, I think you're you're right on the money with a lot of that stuff. Um, the the consumer price index is so deceitful and just you know it. What really you know you said you try to practice stoicism so you don't get angry about these things, but it's it's hard, man, because so many people like really intelligent people you can't have a conversation with them about economics where where they can see like a world without inflation because in their mind like oh you have to have inflation like without inflation like the entire economy would collapse like no and they'll they will argue with you to the grave because they've been so indoctrinated to believe that this uh systematic and systemic theft is good for them yeah and that's a really interesting point as well these concepts that we're talking about are not even allowed to be talked about in school uh, or school or college, nor are they even really allowed to be talked about on television, right? Like outside of a Bitcoin podcast or like a Mises podcast or something, where are you even going to hear about this stuff? So people aren't even exposed to it. And if you bring it up because it's not discussed in any, you know, quote unquote, respectable outlets, you know, for lack of a better term, what the mainstream would consider respectable it just sounds like a kooky conspiracy theory, right? Like to people that have had no, no exposure to it because it's sort of like this just giant media and academic blackout on these topics altogether. And the other point that I just want to make before, you know, before we move on from this or anything, the other thing that's very appealing to me about sound money is I've separate and apart from economics, I have a strong belief in localism, you know, basically meaning sort of the concept that all decisions should be made at the smallest level where they can efficiently be made, right? And that starts all the way down at the family level, right? So decisions that can be made at the family level shouldn't be made by your local municipal government because it works at the family level. Then decisions that don't work at the family level should be made at local municipal government and not at the state level, right? Unless if it's inefficient at the municipal level, that's the only way we go up to the state level and then all the way up to a federal government. So, you know, localism is sort of this idea that you want to make decisions at the smallest level possible, sort of the way Switzerland is always held up as sort of the example of this, right? Uh, and Switzerland, the current Switzerland, I guess, and early United States, you know, were, were sort of in that system. One of the texts that has influenced me most in that regard um, is, believe it or not, a papal encyclical called Rerum Novarum. Are you familiar with it? Uh, I can't say that I've read it. Okay, so it's like really interesting. It came out in the 1890s. Um, it's really, really short. Uh, you can get it. The Kindle version is like 99 cents, right? Like if you just want to check it out. Uh, and it is, uh, so around that time in the late 19th century, socialism was sort of sweeping across Europe. So the Pope put out basically a treatise on the relationship between labor and capital. And Bitcoiners may not normally agree with everything that's in there, um, but I think would certainly find it interesting. Uh, so it discusses a lot of different things. Localism is a big part of it, you know, decisions being made at the smallest level possible. Um, and it also, so, because that's obviously a counterbalance to socialism in and of itself, right? Decisions being made at the local level instead of centralized at a high level. And it also talks about, you know, respect for private property, how that's important. Um, and it also talks about uh, relationship between labor and capital on fair terms, right? Because it was it was writing in the, I mean, he was writing this under the circumstance where there was a fear that if, you know, 
if monopolists gain too much power, people were going to see socialists as the only alternative, right? So, which is kind of happening now, frankly, right? And I, and I don't blame, honestly, regular people for drawing that conclusion because it's a, it's a logical conclusion if you're not familiar with the concepts that we're talking about on this podcast. Great, yeah. So, uh, you know, that was always a very influential text to me. And if anybody's out there and that sounds interesting, pick it up. You're going to read the whole thing in like an hour and I think you'll find it... Uh, you know, very interesting, very on point. Doesn't discuss sound money at all, but a lot of economic concepts in there are very tangentially related to what we're just, both economic and governmental concepts. You know, I, I, I do see a lot of localism from Bitcoiners just on Twitter and stuff. So um, are going to be tangentially related there. Yeah, that whole idea of like, you know, run your own full node is sort of like localization of governance in a yeah. nutshell. Uh, it, uh, I, I think... I think Hans Hermann Hopp actually references that uh, document you're talking about in some of his work, but okay. that's like a. Uh, I recently read through uh, Democracy: The God That Failed, like one of his books gotcha. that sort of compares yeah. like the private property governance of like monarchy models versus democracy, which tends to uh, publicize everything. And uh, kings were more incentivized to preserve the wealth of their state and sure. of their people you know, because they were self-interested in their own private property. Whereas public property, you're in your best interest to spend as much of it as you can while you can uh, without worrying about the, the the good of the people. And I'm also trying to slog my way through wealth of nations right now. But uh, <laughs> what, what you're talking about sounds a little bit more uh, bite-sized <laughs> recommendations. It's, it's super bite-sized. Yeah, like if you like you'll breeze right through it. It's also not hard to read, um, even though it was written in the I think it's the 1890s. Um, the, the language is fairly modern and fairly straightforward to read. And, you know, if anybody out there too, I mean, I, I am a Christian, but if you're not a Christian, I, I think that you'll still find the, the, the book interesting. Um, you don't, it's not actually particularly heavy handed with, with, in terms of religion. It's funny how many, uh, conservative religious minded thinkers you can find, that are interested in this type of stuff because so much of it yeah. meshes so well together. I've met a lot of uh, people that are like super into Austrian economics and libertarianism that are actually turn out to be Christian guys. And I never really expected to find that in this space, but that's, that's neither here nor there. No, but what's really interesting about that, just before we go off that topic, I found that as well. And it's really interesting how different people that might call themselves libertarian, but come from either the Austrian background or the, uh, or the Bitcoin background or both, right. Are a lot different in that regard than like people that are members of the libertarian party of the United States, right. Who libertarian party of the United States is kind of like people that just want to, they're like super pumped on marijuana. Most that's, that's, I can't really gather much more from them other than that. Um, and it's a very different like attitude and perspective I found than I notice among Bitcoiners and people that are actually reading Austrian texts. Yeah, we're like the leftover parts guys, you know, like you you get like the, the thing from the store and you put it together and you have these leftover parts and you're like, where do these go? These don't fit anywhere. Yeah, well, yeah. Just exactly. like put them in a box over there. <laughs> that's that's how I feel like, you know, our this community seems to be. But uh, well, anyway, so. You said uh, you're a hobbyist software developer. Now, actually, I you went through uh, Justin Moon's Biddle Bootcamp, which is actually something I've been through as well. I believe you went through that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, in software development, my story is like super weird. Um, 
like I said, I'm an attorney and a CPA, but going back to the 90s, I actually was in the computer science program at Rutgers, right? So I had done some programming, you know, 20 plus years ago uh, back at that time, but I ended up changing careers before I ever got a job or anything like that in software development. I ended up changing careers and sort of going this way instead. As to why I did that, I honestly couldn't tell you. When I was in school, I went to night school, right? So I worked full-time as a salesman back then. I was I worked full-time in sales and went to college and law school at night. Um, so, you know, I ended up changing careers and never, I always had like a good technical background, I guess, for a non-developer because of that. But I didn't really do any software development until, uh, you know, 20 years later, I enrolled in Justin's Biddle Bootcamp class and, uh, you know, got back into it. That's what really got back, got me back into it after 20 years. And it was a it was a fairly smooth transition because even though it had been so long, the big level concepts of programming don't change, right? So I had all that like still in my head. I hadn't forgotten it. It was just sort of a matter of getting back into the flow of things. And then, of course, like everything had changed, right? So like, you know, uh, the example is like Justin's class is taught in Python. That was not a language that was used in 1999. Um, I think it was invented in like 97 it's like python one existed but it's like an experimental thing that no one used so the the joke i always make is like the libre patron i like listed out once all the different tools that i used to build that and almost none of them existed in 1999 like even sql did what didn't exist till 2000 um so it's just you know but that does show that you know the big 10,000 foot view concepts they don't change right it's just sort of learning the minutia again as as time goes along yeah well i actually definitely want to talk more about uh libra patron um maybe a little bit later uh, sure it seems like you did the right thing though you know like you went into software you got at least a fundamental understanding of software and then you transitioned into you know accounting and you got your cpa which is actually a great thing because you don't need a certification to be a software engineer but you certainly need a certification to be an accountant and, and that, a lawyer yeah yeah that yeah. really worked out for you in the long run there yeah it did uh in a weird kind of way it did i lucked out so i always tell people that are considering going to law school to not go and not because it hasn't worked out well for me it has but it's only worked out for well, well for me because I'm in such a tiny niche, right? Like most lawyers don't do it. Most lawyers have to put on a suit and go to court and like answer to a boss and all that stuff. And even before my practice shifted towards Bitcoin, I never had to do that because I had this very highly specialized knowledge of tax. So I did all consulting work. If I wasn't dual licensed as an attorney or as, and a CPA, I would not have been able to have the career that I had. So like my advice to aspiring lawyers is either don't do it or specialize in something like super niche, like be a patent lawyer or a tax lawyer or something like that. All of which ironically, like whether it's patent or tax or whatever, require highly specialized area knowledge in an area totally unrelated to the law, right? Like to even to be a patent lawyer, you have to have a scientific technical background. To be a tax lawyer, you have to have a tax background, you know, so. Sure. Ahead, I feel ahead. like Bitcoin's the same way too. You know, you have to understand like you have to have a pretty good grasp on technology and economics to like really understand what's going on. Yeah, a lot of generalists in Bitcoin, or or not even if they're generalists, but people that come from different backgrounds. Um, you know, if you just an example just off the top of my head, Pierre Rochard of the famous node launcher, right? I mean, his original background is not 
mean, he's a full-time software developer now, but that was not his original background. His background is accounting like me. Um, he left accounting before taking the CPA exam, but he was, you know, working in an accounting firm. And that's when, what sort of drove him to get into software development. So you find a lot of people that, uh, you know, come from all different backgrounds in Bitcoin. Yeah. And, uh, that's a useful skill set to draw from though in the Bitcoin world. Like any, any accounting knowledge is desperately needed when you've got a lot of armchair financial experts, like on Twitter, you know? Yeah. Right. And I kind of luck out and like, I'm one of the few that like have uh, a tax background, right? Because even a lot of the guys that have accounting or finance backgrounds, tax is a different thing, right? Like I don't actually have a strong background in say finance particularly because I'm more focused on tax. Um, so that's an even smaller, I guess, niche for lack of a better word. And speaking of taxes, uh, there are a lot of people out there, you know, and, and maybe it's not as bad as I think it is now because it's 2018, like 2017 has come and gone. The, hopefully the altcoin craze is, is dying off. But yeah, there are a lot of people out there that, that still don't understand um, cryptocurrency taxes. And obviously, like, I don't even think the SEC and the IRS understand cryptocurrency taxes, but I, I want to hear it straight from your mouth. Like every okay. single... <laughs> asset exchange is a taxable event like trading any crypto for another crypto or spending any other crypto for anything like for good or service doesn't matter what it is taxable event is that correct correct yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a deemed sale so like if you spend bitcoin on like goods or services it's a deemed sale for the value of the goods or services you receive so like if, if i bought a ten dollar mug from you in bitcoin it would however much bitcoin i transfer to you is treated as a deemed sale for ten dollars. Yeah, right. it's, there's a lot of um, people on the internet just giving out bad information, like, oh, if you do X, Y, and Z, it's not a taxable event, or like, if you just cr trade one crypto for another, it's not a taxable mm -hmm. event. And uh, that you, stuff typically affects traders more than Bitcoiners, right? Because they're the ones that are like swapping constantly in and out of all yeah. these different cryptocurrencies when they pump. Most Bitcoiners are just holding for the most part, so it's not that big a thing and if they're spending any bitcoin it's not a lot so even if they had any taxable income there it would be usually pretty minimal right yeah. I, I know uh for me personally like coming into this space kind of already having a background not really a background but like a hobbyist interest in austrian economics and then coming into bitcoin like or coming back to bitcoin rather uh years later after I kind of realized what it was, because I first heard about it, you know, back when it first came out, but uh, I didn't really get into it till like 2016. But at first, you know, I was all about the altcoins. I was buying lots of different altcoins and trading between lots of different altcoins. And I had sure. like 50 different wallets for all these different coins and all these different exchanges. And then like after a year went by, I was like, this is stupid. And I, you know, I kind of figured out, I came back to Bitcoin, so to speak. I had like my, my come to Jesus moment. And <laughs> since then, you know, I'm pretty much at this point, I would consider myself, I guess, what you would call Bitcoin maximalist. Um, but I, that didn't, now I still had to deal with all the tax burden that I created for myself as terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Libra patron. Yeah, I saw that that's been something you've been working on recently. Completely open source, um, working with BTC Pay Server, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Can you talk a little bit about Libra Patron and what your intentions are behind creating that? Sure. It's a self-hosted open source version of Patreon, right? So, you know, as we all know, unfortunately, Patreon has become pretty heavy-handed with censorship. 
uh, with Libre Patron, if you transition over to that, uh, there's no censorship because even if I wanted to censor you, I couldn't. Everything is completely self-hosted. So the analogy I use is if you remember Blogspot back in the day, that was like a big blogging platform. It was owned by Google and it sort of eventually fell by the wayside because of WordPress, which WordPress was sort of the decentralized open source self-hosted solution. That's what I'm trying to be here. You know, the WordPress of Patreon. So essentially, uh, it's really easy to launch because all you have to do if you launch BTC Pay Server is there's just a simple extra command that you add in there, and it just spins up Libre Patron right along next, right alongside of your BTC Pay Server. It's already linked up and synced together, um, so you have a nice interface whereby it's a public-facing website where you can describe what you do. And just like Patreon, uh, you're able to post updates and only your subscribers are able to see those updates. Whenever you post an update, it bulk emails those updates to your subscribers. Again, like Patreon, I tried to clone as much of the Patreon um, functionality as I could. And then in terms of billing, um, by default, the billing is, is through Bitcoin, through BTC Pay. So what will happen is every time someone gets near the expiration date for their subscription, they will get an email. You don't have, this is all automated. They'll get an automated email with a link they can click to make a Bitcoin payment and that will automatically renew their subscription. And they get an email five days before their subscription expires. Then they get it. If they don't pay on that email, they get a second email on their expiration date saying, hey, you're going to get, you know, you're not going to be able to log in anymore. Well, you'll be able to log in, but you won't be able to see updates anymore if you don't renew. So, uh, and then optionally, you can also activate credit card payments through Square. So it also now supports Square integration. Um, if you sign up for an account at Square, you just basically put in your Square, uh, I forget what they call it. It's basically your Square ID. And then it all syncs up to Square. And if people want to pay by credit card, they're then also able to pay by credit card and they'll automatically be charged on their, uh, you know, their expiration date for renewal until they cancel. So it's got all that functionality. And then the most recent update from, I think it was the last week or two weeks ago, is it's now customizable with skins as well. There's 21 different themes that you can pick from so that, you know, not everybody's Libre patron has to look the same. You can pick a different, you know, color and style scheme, stuff like that. So the way most people use it that are using it is, you know, if you do the one-click install for BTC Pay, uh, which you can do through Luna Node or you can do through Azure or you can, you know, you can do something very similar on your own server in your apartment if you want to. Um, you just, like I said, it's one extra command that sort of activates Libre Patron. It's all completely integrated with the BTC Pay installer. Um, the guys at BTC Pay were nice enough to allow me to do that. Um, so it'll just spin right up and automatically be synced to your BTC Pay. All right. I got, I got a couple questions here. Um, sure. so I've never used BTC Pay server now is do you have to be running uh like a bitcoin and a lightning node in order for that to actually work on your end it spins them up for you um if you use the so the way most people install btc pay is including the way that i do it um is that it um you use the docker based installer which you don't as an end user you don't have to be familiar with docker to know how to use it it, it automates all this for you um, but if you use the docker based installer it automatically spins up a Docker container with BTC Pay. It spins up Bitcoin D. 
It spins up uh, the Lightning implementation of your choice. You can choose LND or C Lightning, whichever you prefer. Uh, a web-based dashboard to manage your LND or C Lightning, and then it also spins up uh, Libre Patron. You know, assuming that you decide to uh, add that on there as an option. So it's all done for you, and your your the Bitcoin D that it spins up for you automatically as soon as you install it starts syncing the blockchain immediately. Nice. And like, let's say I'm, I'm one of these people who already has like a Bitcoin full node and a lightning node running on like a, like a Raspberry Pi or something. Do I, can I just like uh, run BTC pay server and point that to my existing node? You could. So there's like a couple different ways you could do that. Um, you could use, if you're, if you're running it on a Raspberry Pi and you're, well, I'll say a couple things. The easiest way to do it would just be to spin up a new instance with the Docker installer if you're not yeah. overly technical. I figured. It's only going to take a couple days to sync the blockchain. Uh, yeah. you know, so, like, that will, if unless you're very technical, that's probably going to be the least aggravating way to do it. However, let's say you did want to do it with your existing um, Bitcoin setup. You could uh, you could do the non-dockerized version of BTC Pay and point it at your existing you know Bitcoin D, um, assuming that your you know your existing Bitcoin D is not on Docker. You could do that. Um, like I said, it's more difficult, but you certainly can do that. Uh, or you could copy your blocks folder over, um, you know, and, and handle it that way. Hmm. Uh, every time I've I mean I've spun these up and torn down a million times. I just always spin it up with the with the new Bitcoin D and you know whatever it's, it doesn't take that long to sync. Bite the bullet, huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, I actually I'm I'm using a Casa node right now, and okay, uh, I really what I really like about their direct competitor uh, Noddle, which I didn't actually come out until after I, I bought. I was one of the first people to buy a Casa node. Uh, they have BTC Pay integration, like directly on the pie yeah out of the box i'd yeah. love to see that with with casa one day but if not you know chances are i'll probably just just get like a dedicated rig to run a beats like specifically btc pay on uh and just probably spin up the nodes over there yeah if you want to host it yourself there are people that are doing btc pay on raspberry pi there's a guide out there for that um if you want to check that out um or you can do you probably you might want to use something a little more um robust in terms yeah. of system resources yeah. uh, so especially you can, if you're going to be worrying like if your livelihood depends on that you know like a business or something exactly or you said that's another option um if you want to use a vps uh btc pay has a one-click integration with luna node uh, it's about seven dollars a month for a luna node and you've got your full setup all hosted on their vps so if you want to go about it in that direction uh, or if you don't want to use the Luna node setup, you can, there is also an integration that BTC Pay has natively with Azure. Um, so you can do it that way. Um, you know, however you want to, however you want to do it, there are a million ways to install it. Like I said, even if you don't want to use the Docker installer and you're more technical and you want to really dig in there and point it at your non-Dockerized Bitcoin node, you can definitely do that as well. That's the way I see this going. I think for a lot of people is probably, you know, the, the virtual server route, but, uh, you know, the Bitcoiners, they don't, they're, they're like, no, 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 no virtual servers here. Um, yeah, and the, the Docker installer does work on your own server. You don't have to do that through a virtual server. You just clone the Docker installer, run a script, and, you know, it'll, it'll fire right up. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that your your email notifications um, for payments is, is, you know, it's, 
I was actually talking about uh, about this with Lightning Koala just the other day. I did an interview with him. Um, we were talking about like kind of kind of some of the design difficulties that you have to work around with Lightning because of the, because of the fact that it's a push system. You know, like yeah. you, the the whole recur- like we're so used to thinking in terms of pull systems, uh, even as like yeah. especially as consumers, I would say. Right. Um, I, I like your your email reminder idea. I think that that's you know it's it's kind of the best you got right now, at least until Sphinx gets a little bit further along. Yeah, I mean, what else are you gonna do, right? I mean, otherwise because otherwise you're locking up people's funds regardless, even if they're not being released right away, they're still locked up. So I don't, you know, I, I think right now the best we've got is just sending a push reminder to people and making it as easy to approve that reminder as easy as possible, right? You just want them to be able to tap on it and approve the payment and kind of go from there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I especially, uh, like your model more than some of the other Patreon alternative models out there right now, like Tallycoin. And I, I like Tallycoin. I think it's a really interesting project, but it's, you know, you, you can't have, you can't do your own custodial lightning. Like you have to set it up through like open node or, um, right. I forget what their other services, but you can't even, you can't even host self host your own lightning with them, which, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world, but I really like the way you're doing it a lot more. Yeah, this is entirely self-hosted. So there's no open node, no BitPay, no nothing. Like this is, it's uh, your, you know, it's it, payments are going directly to your wallet. That's awesome. Well, um, that's about all the stuff I had on my list to talk about. I, I know you're also into bodybuilding too, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm a competitive bodybuilder. Oh, nice. What weight class? So I compete uh, in natural organizations, which are drug tested, uh, which is a little bit different from what you see on television. So as a result, we don't typically have weight classes because we're not all that far apart in weight, just sort of by the nature that we're not doing, we're not taking drugs, right? So if you're 5'11 and you're at the level of leanness necessary to be on stage, there's going to be a range in weights, but not as extreme as when you're dealing with people that are doing different levels of steroids, say, right? Yeah. So it's, we don't typically in natural organizations have weight classes. Um, we have divisions, which are more, which are based on look. They're not based on like a hard weight class or anything. So there's, for men, there's only three. There's men's physique, classic physique, and then open bodybuilding, right? Um, so I compete in classic physique. That's awesome. In the past, I also have competed in men's physique. So that's sort of in terms of look, men's physique is a smaller, more streamlined look. Uh, bodybuilding is a little bit more of an extreme look. And classic physique is sort of uh, in between those two uh, in between those two looks. And that that's where I typically compete. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's actually what my background is, is in uh, fitness, not specifically bodybuilding, but okay. uh, that's what I got my undergrad in exercise physiology, which is kind of why I brought that up. Cause for a while I was like doing strength and conditioning, coaching and that type of thing. Uh, it's not like I've kind of moved away from it now, you know, I'm focused on other things. I really want to get into programming, um, full time eventually, but yeah, something I've always been really interested in. I've seen firsthand, like, you know, how, how badly, uh, people mess themselves up for the rest of their lives. Like, to, to try to compete in in bodybuilding and uh, just cycling on and off testosterones and steroids and stuff like that. So yeah. I, I commend you for doing it the right way. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I have, it's just a different sport, you know, like the, so for those people out there listening that don't know, like the bodybuilding organizations that are, you know, quote unquote popular are basically the um, MPC, which is the amateur level. And then if you go far enough in the MPC, you make it to the IFBB, which is the pro level, right? Uh, and those are not drug tested at all, which is fine. Everybody's on the same page. You know what I mean? Everybody, uh, Everybody knows what they're getting into if you're going to compete in MPC or IFBB, right? That's just how those organizations work. Different sport. Um, the organizations I compete in are different. We take a lie detector before every show, and then the winners are all urine tested, right? Is there a way to beat the lie detector in the urine test? I don't know. Probably, right? I, I don't know. But it's not really the issue. I mean, I don't get the impression when I compete that the majority of people there are cheating or anything like that. Um, because if you want to get like popular and famous, you wouldn't be competing with us. You'd be in NPC, right? Like that's where you can actually, you know, uh, make a big name for yourself. The, the natural organizations are much, much less popular um, because, you know, we don't look as good. It's, it's the nature of uh, how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Having spent a lot of time um, in, in certain uh, elite circles of athleticism, I can tell you that there are certainly ways to like cheat just about any test out there. Yeah. Or and th then there's like a lot of the things too that are basically non-detectable, like blood doping and erythropoietins, and it just. But man, that's not so dangerous. We have is some of that like that blood doping stuff is more for endurance athletes, yeah. so it doesn't really benefit us that much it's true yeah it, it, it'll give you probably a little bit of an edge in terms of like your your recovery time and like your daily right. grind um but yeah it's not gonna it's not gonna make you big but right yeah, yeah for sure and i don't even think i don't think urine tests can detect hgh either i could be mistaken but yeah that's a good i i don't th i think you're right i don't think they do so yeah, with, with in terms of HGH, I guess they're relying on the the lie detector and the fact that it's so damn expensive. Uh, you know, to compete in natural bodybuilding, like if you even if you make it to the pro level, the purses are very, very, very small in natural orgs. So uh, you'd be spending a lot of money on HGH to win a very, very tiny purse. Oh yeah, that stuff's expensive. Uh, yeah, uh, and I think it's interesting that the lie detector test you guys. Yeah, like what else are you gonna do, right? Like, I mean, like uh, some people think it's silly, but it's like better than nothing. It definitely deters some people from attempting to go out there, right? I mean, it's you have to go in this little room with a trained lie detector guy. It, it makes me nervous. I don't mean anything to hide, right? They hook you up to the you know the thing around your chest that monitors your breathing, and you're sitting on a special pad that monitors whether you're fidgeting and then they've got the pulse thing on your finger it is like very disconcerting yeah so there's at least some people that that's dissuading from trying to cheat i never would have guessed never would have guessed well um so is there any other like projects you're working on or anything like that that you'd want to talk about or anything else like bitcoin related um the, the only other thing i should mention is the first project that i did that was a plugin for btc pay before i did libre patron was a QuickBooks plugin. Um, so that's that's my other project. It also installs directly from the BTC Pay installer, just like uh, Libre Patron does. So if you're a merchant and you're out there and you're using QuickBooks for your bookkeeping and you'd like to be able to synchronize it to BTC Pay, um, that plugin is out there, um, and that's definitely something you should that you should check out if you accept Bitcoin and you use QuickBooks. That was a really good first project for me to get into with BTC Pay. 
because it was a fairly small project. It wasn't um, too tough to do. Uh, and actually, if you're interested in more of the technical side of both the BTC Play plugin and also the uh, Libre patron, you can check out, I did like a code walkthrough with Justin Moon on his YouTube channel. Um, so it's like, it's like 90 minutes and we kind of go through both of them, the different tools that I use, the different ways that I approached, uh, you know, the coding of those solutions. So, uh, that might be interesting to check out. Nice. Okay. And so we've talked about a lot of products here. All right. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put links to everything in the show notes, but where, where can people find, um, first and foremost, if they're interested in, you know, the, the Bitcoin retirement account, where can they go for more information on that? Yeah. That, so yeah. So then, yeah, let me show my stuff here first. So like the important one, right. If we're actually make some money, if you want to hold Bitcoin in your IRA or 401k and you want to hold your own keys and don't want to spend a ton of money, go check out vandrew.com. So that's my last name, V-A-N-D-R-E-W.com. Uh, the information's on that site. You can check it out. And if you want to move forward with it, you can schedule a phone call with me right on that website to get the ball rolling and get that started. As we talked about before, you can do a tax-free rollover from your existing retirement account into this structure uh, to kind of to kind of get it rolling. Um, if you're looking for Libre Patron stuff, go to librepatron.com. That's a demo site that has links to the GitHub installation instructions. So you can definitely check that out. Uh, and then the QuickBooks plugin, if that's something you need, uh, btcqbo.com stands for Bitcoin QuickBooks Online, btcqbo.com. That'll redirect you right to the GitHub, uh, which explains how to install it along with your BTC pay. Awesome. And, and then, well, last thing, you can also, if you just want to like bother me or something on Twitter, um, uh, Vandrew, A-T-T-Y-C-P-A, V-A-N-D-R-E-W-A-T-T-Y-C-P-A. Nice. Yeah, that's where I was going next. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really enjoyed this conversation, and hopefully I can have you back on here sometime soon. Yeah, awesome, man. I had a great time. All right. Take See care. You. All right. I hope you guys found that informative. I think that Jeff has a lot to offer the Bitcoin space, especially that Bitcoin retirement thing. But Libra Patron is also a pretty interesting project that really caught my attention. I think you guys should be paying attention to that if you're not already. Don't forget that if you want to find links to any of the content that we discussed, you can find those down in the show notes. You can find those over on BitcoinEchoChamber.com in the show notes for the interview there. Otherwise, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Don't forget to give us the thumbs up, the stars, the likes, whatever it is on whatever platform you're using. All that goes a long way. We really appreciate it here at the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Guys, thanks so much for watching. I appreciate everybody that has taken the time to listen to my show, and I will see you guys in the next one.